New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. It is only through a change in human consciousness that the world will be transformed. The personal and the planetary are connected. As we expand our awareness of mind, body, psyche, and spirit, and bring that awareness actively into the world, so also will the world be changed. This is our quest as we explore new dimensions. If we learn how to reframe the pieces of our past in our life stories so that suffering becomes meaningful, we can radically boost our chances of healing, empowerment, growth, and transformation. Today we'll be exploring how focused journaling and short writing exercises can be powerful tools to achieve this aim with our guest, Katherine Ann Jones. Katherine Ann Jones is an award-winning playwright and screenwriter and a Fulbright Scholar to India studying shamanism. She holds a graduate degree and teaches depth psychology and archetypal mythology. As a screenwriter, Jones has contributed to such television series as Touched by an Angel and wrote the teleplay The Christmas Wife. She teaches writing workshops and is the author of Heal Yourself Through Writing and The Way of Story, The Craft and Soul of Writing. Join us for the next hour as we explore how we can engage in deep inner work through writing with our guest, Katherine Ann Jones. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Katherine, Welcome. Happy to be here. I'm happy to have you. I mean, uh, you've just told me that you have just arrived from Kuwait. That was a long, long trip. Uh, it was. 20 hours in the air. 20 hours in the air. 11 hours time difference. Wow. So you've been teaching writing in Kuwait and really teaching all over the world. Yes, it's very interesting because, as Muriel Rukeyser said, the wonderful poet from New York, the world is made up of stories, not atoms. And there's stories all over the world. Mentioning that, I know that in your book, The Way of Story, you have a prologue piece that, that is so beautiful. I, I would love for you to share that piece with our listeners. I'd be happy to. Um, I'll ask the listeners if they would to close their eyes when they hear. Unless they're driving. Unless they're driving, <laughs> then please don't. And instead of just hearing the words, try and feel the words. In the beginning was story. The caveman rushed back to his tribe and excitedly acted out his encounter with some Paleolithic beast. This was his story. And forever after, he would be remembered by this story. 
Stories have a sacred dimension not because of God's, but because a man or woman's sense of self and her world is created through them. These stories orient the life of a people through time, establishing the reality of their world. Thus, meaning and purpose are given to people's lives. Without story, we do not exist. The way of story is how we discover who we are. Beautifully said. So let's talk about story. And you've suggested that to know our own story is how we're able to change it. Um, Yes, it is a revisioning. Um, One of the key uh, themes of the new book, uh, Heal Yourself with Writing, is that our lives may be determined less by past events than by the way we remember them. So memory is very subjective and changeable. I mean, I learned this raising my son. I'd remember something when he was little that we were both present for, and I would say it. And my son would say, no, mother, that's not what happened at all. It was this, this, and this. So we know from experience, no two people remember the same thing the same way. So perhaps the way, especially remembering trauma or some uh, traumatic experience, um, the way we remember is probably as or more important than what actually happened. Because I find for the healing of grief and trauma, what has to happen is a shift in perspective. So that's sort of a cornerstone of my work with this. So in other words, we we can't we can't change the event itself, but we can change our perspective of yes. I know I know that there's a phrase that you use in the book that I loved. It was called what you remember remembers you. What you remember remembers you. What do you mean by that? Well, well, one example is um, there was a new, I'm segueing, uh, diverting a little bit, but it's a way to answer what you asked. The New York Times recently did an article that um, 20 years, 30 years ago, talking therapy was what everyone did. You went and did a talking therapy with a psychiatrist or psychotherapist. Today, it's writing workshops. One of the challenges of just talking therapy, say you're talking about a trauma or traumatic event, it's possible to re-traumatize the body by telling your story over and over again because the body doesn't know the difference between the real trauma and a simulated trauma, hence talking about it. So what is needed and what I try and do in the workshop and with um, the exercises in the book is distance the the perceiver from the event. And in this way, you can shift perspectives, and that creates a gap between what happened and what you remember or perceive. And in that gap is where the healing takes place. So what would somebody do to distance themselves? What is your suggestion? 
I'll give an example. For instance, one of the many exercises I do um, for healing trauma, I have them first write down in broad strokes what the traumatic event was, very simply. And then I have several versions in this exercise where they write about the event from different points of view. For instance, write about it from a point of view of a hero or heroine and what you learn from this. And it ends up, the last part of that exercise is right about the event from the point of view of the perpetrator. For instance, um, I've had rape victims in the workshops often, so write about it from the point of view of the rapist. It's very hard, but in doing that, you, you're, right, you're shifting your perspective to a more objective or different. If you first remember a trauma, inevitably the, you write about it from a victim point of view. And by telling that story again and again, I was raped at the whatever it is, you kind of put in cement your victim mentality. But if you can shift the perspective away from victimhood to hero or heroine or even the perpetrator, it creates a distance. And it's in that distance or gap where the healing takes place. So if there's some habit in our life that we want to change. Yeah. Um, I, I would think that this is, would also be a exactly. good technique to, to it's, it's hard yeah. to change it from the inside out. Let's, for example, mm -hmm. I, I had this idea for myself. Yeah. Um, my desk continues to be piled. I mean, I get it kind of cleaned off, but then it just seems like overnight it just piles up again. Mm -hmm. And I thought, oh, Maybe I could do, when I read your book and looked at all the wonderful exercises, I thought maybe I could write about my desk from the viewpoint of, of the, the desk. Yes, very <laughs> like, good. Very <laughs> to good. use, use yeah. that as yeah. my focal point and write it toward myself yeah. rather than from inside myself. Exactly, right on. Um, another of the exercises is uh, what I call the body dialogues, where you actually hold a dialogue with the part of your body that's giving you some trouble. Um, with me, it's the neck. I, you know, have perennial because of old accidents or whatever. Someone else, it could be stomach or whatever. So you you speak to that body part and you listen to what it wants to tell you. And, you know, my neck might tell me, you know, I've tried to tell you, but you won't listen. You need to slow down, stop jumping all over the world on these long trips to do it and so on, and give us time to rest and so on. And then the last part is you answer your body's voice and saying, I hear you this time, so I am going to try and take better care of you or whatever. I know it sounds a little simplistic, but it increases awareness that our body does speak to us. And at first it whispers, and if we don't listen, it's going to shout. Right. You know, yes, so. I think we've all experienced that. Yeah. So this is a way of, of shifting starting, perspective. And starting to hear your inner voice. Your inner voice and also your, your somatic voice. Your somatic, the body. Your body voice. Um, a lot of the book is about um, cultivating the intuitive inner voice. 
And I, in both of my books, uh, they're both partial memoirs. I use anecdotes from my own life and journey to illustrate principles I'm teaching. And uh, there's a personal example that's rather dramatic of um, cultivating the intuitive voice. Uh, when I was in my early 20s, um, I was an actor in New York City. That was my first career in the theater. And I was going to visit a, a woman friend of mine who had just come from Europe acting in a film. She lived on Central Park South. So I walked into her flat, and the first moment I walked in, I felt uneasy. There was no logical reason why I should feel uneasy. So I pushed it away with my logical left brain. I said, that's silly. I've just arrived. This is an old friend and so on. She sat me down in a chair near the window overlooking Central Park. Soon as I sat in that chair, a very clear inner voice said, you're in danger. Leave. Leave now. Again, I tried to push it away, but it became so intense. Uh, it persistent. Within five minutes, I said, I'm sorry, Patricia, I'm not feeling well. I have to go. And I left. About 15 minutes later, I walked into my own apartment and the phone was ringing. Pick up the phone. It's Patricia. She says, Catherine, you'll never believe what happened just a few minutes after you left. I said, what? You know that chair you were sitting in by the window? I said, yes. Well, you know, in New York, the old buildings have these huge air conditioning units that are as big as a dining table, you know, huge. It was windy that day, and one had fallen off the building, crashed into that window onto that chair where I was sitting, I would have been killed. Wow. So th the moral is, listen to that inner voice. It could save your life. I'm here with Catherine Ann Jones. She's the author of Heal Yourself with Writing. My name is Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Catherine Ann Jones, and she's the author of Heal Yourself with Writing. And if you'd like to know more about her work and her workshops, you can go to the website wayofstory.com. That's wayofstory.com. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. Catherine, I'd love to know, what is the difference between automatic writing and the kind of focused journaling that you talk about? Good question. 
Um, focus journal, uh, automatic writing is a little more general. Just write whatever you feel like and so on. Focus journaling is more like a laser beam to your psyche. So it's very specific. It asks very specific things. Like um, in the first chapter, what story are you living? We ask, um, are you living your own story or the story of your parent? You know, Carl Jung, the psychologist, said, there's no greater influence on a child than the unlived life of the parent. So often we're not living our own dream or story, but we're living a parent's projection or so on. So what are some of your suggestions for us to disentangle that that story from our authentic story from that which we're living out of our parents or other people? Good question. One of all of the exercises in the book are really trying to be, make you more aware of your authentic self. So we examine desire. What is it we desire? There's one exercise that people seem to enjoy where I ask them at age 12, I wanted to be, and you fill in the blank at age 22 and you add 10 years and go on up and you notice that what you wanted to be or what you desired changed over the decades. So that's one awareness technique to see the history of what you wanted to be or do. And then the follow-up exercise is what about you has stayed the same what has been the constant in your life in terms of your desire, what you want it to be? So there's a lot of transient desires or dreams, but there's often a constant, and that constant will point you toward what you really should be doing now. I would imagine, I'm just hearing that, like what stayed the same, it may seem like an easy question, but... That might not. not be an easy question no. for, for us uh, to view our own lives with a kind of broadness that we need to, we need to know ourselves. How, how would you suggest that we know what stays has, has well, stayed the same? In my case, I think even though I had different careers, uh, two things stayed the same. There was always a spiritual quest. I was always a seeker. And that preceded, um, you know, career moves or marriage or whatever, is that I wanted to know. I wanted to know that that is greater than I am. And the other thing that uh, stayed the same was uh, self-expression through the arts, creative self-expression. That was always, even though it was acting for one decade and playwriting for another and then screenwriting and then book writing, there was always that push to self-express through creativity. You had some surprises that came into your life to help guide you in some of those. And I remember one of your stories, uh, I think you were at a wedding and you yeah. needed to change something, and you met a surprising person. Can you say yeah. something about that? Well, I had been an actor for eight, nine, ten years or so, and I had just acted in a great performance. I played the lead in um, a play that PBS aired nationally. 
And yet something stopped in me, and I knew it was time to stop acting. Well, logically, it didn't make sense because it was a very big moment in my my career. But I followed that inner voice, and I stopped cold turkey acting. Two months went by, and I wasn't sure what I was supposed to do next, but I trusted that something would happen to show me the way. I was invited to a wedding of a friend of mine and asked to be part of the wedding, and she lived outside New York, and there were other house guests in their house, and I met this astrologer. I had never met him before, and he said, you know, we have time. We're here two or three days. Give me your dates, and I'll look at your chart. So I said, why not? And he said, this is very interesting. I see acting, but it stops right now within the last month or so. And even though the acting was strong, your next career is going to be even stronger. And I said, what is that? He said, writing. And then it dawned on me, because I had always journaled and written, but it never occurred to me it could be a livelihood Right at that point. So something in you resonated as soon as he said the words. It was kind of like an ally coming in to kind of... Not only like an ally, it was an ally. Because I've noticed my whole life, if you're doing what you're supposed to be doing at each step of your life, authentically true to that deeper self, then the allies come from unexpected places to help guide you. It never fails. And we need to develop eyes to notice them as allies. Yeah, it could be an invisible ally. It could be a dream. It could be a book falling off a shelf, and it's just what you need to know at that time. Or it could be a stranger you happen to meet that will say something that points you. It's like clues as you go through your own adventure. So you're saying the the universe or whatever that energy source is <laughs> provides these clues. We have to have eyes and ears and heart. If you're following your deeper self, it doesn't always work when you're just doing the ego self. Right. And if it's a vanity or an ego, I'm not saying it works on that level. But if you're as sincerely as you can following what, like I stopped acting when it made no sense, but something in me said that's done. I had acted in about 55 plays. I had done it. But here's another interesting thing, Justine, to me at least. I had stopped acting, and then I started playwriting and then screenwriting. There's no better background for a playwright or screenwriter than an acting career because you write good role. It's dramatic writing. So you look back on things that seem to not be connected. And when you look back 30 years later, it's as though there was a design to the whole life. Which Joseph Campbell would would agree, saying, if you look back, it looks like a perfect script. Exactly. Or I'm also thinking about uh, how nature, in the natural world, nature never throws anything out. It, 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 it always compost. builds on yeah, what, yeah. what is there. Yeah. And yeah. so in this case, using that tremendous background to launch you into something new. Yeah, it was new, but it was connected because if you've acted, you know, in all those plays, you kind of had a heads up on what, how to write a good part for an actor. Yes, I I imagine the actors that acted in your screenplays were very 
uh, appreciative of they that, were. that they were. viewpoint. But you know, that you Mo- had. Moliere and Shakespeare were actors first before they wrote plays. So it's there's a lot of um, former actors who leave lasting marks. I'm not comparing myself to those guys (laughs) by any means. It's like the minnow and the whale, but, you know. Um, Let's talk about shamanism. You, I mentioned in the intro, you received a Fulbright scholarship to go to India to, what, research shamanism. Yes. So talk about that. What, What is shamanism and how did it affect your life? Well, what led to it was I was working on Broadway as an actor and then writing plays, and I had several plays produced in New York. I wanted to go somewhere where story and creative writing was more than a commercial enterprise. I was weighed down by the commercialism of the arts in this country, so that prompted me to apply for a Fulbright Research Grant. And uh, so I called it the actor storyteller, and I wanted to study creative shamanic forms. And I studied uh, pre-Hindu Dravidian. They were the people before the Aryans came in over 5,000 years ago. So these were 5,000-year-old art forms, dance drama forms and exorcism forms um, that still existed, though they're starting to die out. Because now, you know, it went father to son over for 5,000 years, and now the sons are becoming computer analysts or something, so we're losing it. So I wanted to get it down on film and study it. So it's an oral tradition. Yes, and remember, before uh, psychiatry or psychology, there were shamans. Shamans um, go back uh, 60,000 years. It's a very old form. And I think there are a lot of parallels that we can learn from today. For instance, the shaman's job, they thought that mental or physical illness was because somehow the person had separated themselves from their souls. They were split off, fragmented. And their job as shamans was to return the man or woman to his soul or his deeper self. And I think that to me, you could say, is the job of the artist today, whichever art, is to return. We live in a fragmented society, so it's not only the individuals that are sick or are fragmented, it's our society, our culture. So somehow, I think the work of the artist today is a way of healing and, and uh, making the person whole again. You tell a story in your book about a synchronicity. You were at a dinner party and you had studied uh, some Siberian shamanism. Uh, Please share that story. Well, of course, synchronicity, which Jung gave us the concept, is when two seemingly unrelated incidents happen that, that have symbolic meaning in the life. I had gone to a cranial therapist one day in Ojai, California, where I live, and the cranial therapist was very uh, mediumistic. She was a bit psychic. And at the end of the session, she said, I just finished reading this book, and I think you're supposed to read it. She put it in my hand. I went home, and it was a book about a female doctor in Russia who had gone to Siberia and met a shaman there in Altai part of Siberia that changed her life. 
I stayed up all night reading the book. I read it in one sitting. It really affected me. The next day, I had met a Hungarian trumpet player who was visiting Ojai, and he invited me for dinner at Meditation Mount, where his friend was director. We were sitting there, and right after dinner, there was a knock on the door. We opened the door. We weren't expecting anyone. There was this unusual man with a beard and a young woman who was from Berkeley who was translating this Russian. He said, I'm, I wasn't supposed to come here, but something drew me here. And uh, he said he was from Siberia, and he was traveling doing shamanic rituals. And I said, well, that's interesting. I just finished this book, and I described it to him, and he said, I am from that place. <laughs> that's amazing, amazing story of synchronicity. I'm here with Catherine Ann Jones. She's the author of The Way of Story, The Craft and Soul of Writing, and Heal Yourself with Writing. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Catherine Ann Jones, and she's the author of Heal Yourself with Writing. And if you'd like to know more about her work, you can go to her website, wayofstory.com, wayofstory.com, or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. Catherine, um, I would love for you to talk about how important metaphors are in our life and in unraveling our soul's purpose and, and how we can proceed to a greater awareness and greater presence in our lives and why images are really important. You, you talk about images a lot in your book for dreams and other ways. So say something about metaphor and images and why these are important. Well, to quote an old friend of mine, uh, Joseph Campbell, friends in New York, he said, if you want to change your life, change your metaphor. Whether consciously or unconsciously, we are living a metaphor. You know, thought has great power, and it can have positive or negative power. So whatever you meditate on or you hold in your subconscious, uh, that's living you. The less aware you are, you're being lived by an image or a metaphor. For instance, in terms of archetypes, I'll, I'll give an example. I Please. think in story. So I sometimes walk with a neighbor of mine. He's an artist. And one day he was saying, I don't know why I'm always drawn to these neurotic women. I'm always drawn to these women who are needy, and I feel I can help them, but then it ends up a disaster every time. And I, I thought to myself, well, he's being lived by the archetype. He's caught up in uh, Sleeping Beauty or Snow White, and he's the prince wanting to rescue the maiden. That's his archetype. 
That's the life metaphor. So when he finds a woman who's needy or in peril, there he is. He shows up, and that's his it's cue. It's like a magnetic Absolutely. attraction. It's his cue to walk on that scenario, walk on stage. And, of course, it ends up a disaster, you know, because that's not real life, and it doesn't satisfy his real needs. But that's an example of unconsciously being lived by an archetype or a metaphor. So if that's like you talk about birth archetypes and if that's kind of his what he's brought forward through since his childhood, how do we shift that then? Well, by coming aware of it, it probably leads to his the mother figure in his life, his own mother or something like that. Because you know, um, we all know when something goes wrong in our childhood, those early years, for instance, you might have a father that deserted the family or the father that's uh, indifferent to you. So your cue would be if you find a man who's indifferent to you, man, that's the one you want. Right. If you find someone who is going to desert you, you're going to run after that guy. You know, so just becoming aware of that can help change and then creating a scenario that's the antithesis of that. You know, for instance, I know a woman who would always be drawn to the man who was going to desert her or not be true. And when she had someone show up who was the other kind of man, she was bored. Because the exciting man was the, was the man who was going to run around and make her life, you, you see the dysfunctionality there. Some of the exercises in the book where you can actually rewrite your life, but through fantasy, through imagining, through imaging. So when you say imaging, like, I just recall one exercise you talk about and this may or may not apply to what we're talking about, but it was, it was about walking through nature and seeing something that would call you. Like you mentioned specifically in this case, no. you saw a, a boulder and you saw some sort of plant, flower, growing out of the oh, top yes. of that boulder, and that attracted your attention. So what did you do with that attraction, and how did you yeah, use it? Yeah, that was on Orca's Island. Um, I have the students in a workshop take 15 minutes to do a silent walk, and they just look for something in nature that attracts them, and then they take that image, go back, and just free associate and write whatever comes to mind. And I saw this huge rock border separated from the coast out in the water, all granite, except at the very top a flower was pushed up through the granite. Miraculous. And I saw that as a metaphor for the persistence of life against all odds. You know, it's a blade of grass. It yes. comes up from the sidewalk. Yes. It's very persistent, life is. And that was so. So you find a metaphor, hopefully a positive metaphor. Of course, metaphors can be negative too, but try and choose a positive one that maybe you're in a very difficult time in life and the odds are against you, but here's this flower pushing up. Something in you wants to reach for the light and the positive power that is in you. Well, what I, what I get from thinking in images rather than in words, 
words are are separated from the way our inner psyche works, so to speak. Uh, maybe I may maybe, not be. May not be. But be. but I'm just just like yeah. recently I was with my women's group and we were going to work on different aspects of growing older. And I just could feel that if I approached any of the questions that were coming up with my language, with language, mm-hmm. I would get bogged down pretty fast. Well, for you, images are stronger than just the words. I well, mean, that can be, it need not be with everyone, I but see. often it is. Um, for instance, I just came back from Kuwait. And imagine a room full of 10 women. They're wearing burqas. And they do the personal myth exercise. I was doing Heal Yourself with writing with them. And this very powerful woman in Kuwait's the eighth richest country in the world. They're all very wealthy. So they're wearing burqas and carrying $5,000 designer handbags, you know. (laughs) So just talk about images, you know. And I did the personal myth exercises. Think back to a fairy tale when you were young, what grabbed you, what you resonated with. And just go with the first one that pops in your mind. It could be Sleeping Beauty, it could be Snow White, could be the Brady Bunch, a TV show, whatever. Hers was Thumbelina. Now, she wasn't a short woman. She wasn't, but she's living in a patriarchy. And her image, her personal myth was Thumbelina. Thumbelina is so small and invisible, you don't notice her, right? Right. A woman in an Arabic culture, you can get it. And so the more she becomes aware that she's Thumbelina, that she survives, but she's little and overpowered by the forces around her. So it was a very telling myth. So how then how would you if she discovers that that personal myth how would she start to change it then? she would become aware she would listen to the voice of that mythic character that's living her life and what Thumbelina wants, maybe she doesn't want always to be six inches high. Maybe she wants to be six foot high or whatever. Mm-hmm. So you listen to that inner voice. We all have these um, inner voices that are both negative and positive. They're usually an internalized parent, or in her case, it could be a culture, too, that represses women. And I'm, I'm, I'm thinking also like, you you devote some time in the book on on our shadow side, and one of the exercises or one of the questions that comes up that I thought was very effective is to look at to, to understand our shadow side and incorporate it, not to push it away, but to integrate it. Is to look at what judgments we are making of other people or what makes us angry. Yeah. Exactly. I believe, and this is my Jungian influence, because, of course, it comes from my study of Carl Jung's psychology. If each, I think we're here for the growth of the soul to become integrated and whole. What we do in terms of career, what awards we win, is an offshoot. But the real reason we're here is for this internal growth. If each individual would go to the end of his own shadow, 
and integrate the shadow. What happens if you, if you repress the shadow in you? If you become so new age that you think there's only positive and there's nothing negative and all you have to do is think good thoughts and nothing bad will ever happen to you, well, good luck. But, you know, <laughs> um, but if you don't integrate that shadow, if you try and push it under the carpet, then there'll be um, an inevitable urge to project it on another human being or a group of people whether it's the Russians or the Jews or whatever. So if each of us could only just integrate our own shadow, become aware of the internalized parent, the negative messages, really hear those voices and process them, then uh, there'd be no need to put it out there on something else. You know, I think that would do more to heal the world than anything else. We've all heard that phrase, what you resist persists. Exactly. So that that if we notice what we're pushing away or judging or or what makes us really angry. I know for myself, let's see, all right. I, I was thinking I kind of did a little bit of this when I was going through the book. And one of the things that really gets to me is when you're on the phone. And you're you're put on this Hold. yes this 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 you they'll say if you press one to get this or press two and none of the questions are the questions yeah. that none of them pertain and you can't get to a real live person that causes a lot of frustration with me. But let's up the ante. Okay. What about recently the guy in the movie theater? that was texting in front of an ex-policeman who was sitting behind him. And the policeman complained, and the guy threw popcorn at him. And the policeman pulled a gun and shot and killed him. Exactly. So that's an, ex an extreme situation of the principle you just mentioned. And that can happen in a moment. You know? So it really is beholden on us to really know our triggers yeah. and to to look at them very mm -hmm. square in the face, so to speak. Probably that ex-policeman had not been heard. Yes. He may not have been heard as a child, as a husband, as whatever. So there's a tremendous need for people to be heard. You know, their stories need to be heard. Yes. And when they're not heard, that creates a negative side effect often. So let's talk about that in just one moment. I'm here with Catherine Ann Jones, and she's the author of The Way of Story, The Craft and Soul of Writing, and also Heal Yourself with Writing. And if you want to know more about her work, you can go to her website, wayofstory.com, or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions.
I'm here with Catherine Ann Jones. By the way, she spells her name C-A-T-H-E-R-I-N-E, Catherine Ann, A-N-N, Jones, J-O-N-E-S, Catherine Ann Jones, the author of Heal Yourself with Writing. Catherine, you were just talking about listening and how important that is, that people to be heard and listened into. Why is that important? Well, I'll give a personal example. I I have a son I raised. I was 21 when I became a mother. I I love mothering. He says I was a good mother. But when I look back, I would do something different. I was too quick to jump in and try and fix things for my son. I realize now if I went back, I would listen more and helpless. Because I think young people, we all do, but especially young people need to be heard and, be, and, and given the space to find their own solutions. You see, sometimes as mothers or even as good friends, we're so quick with the advice, right? Exactly. Yes. I mean, we, we do. We worry for them, you know. I mean, oh, it the intentions from- are good. The intentions, but the road to you know where is paved with good intentions. So I think now, as a friend as well as a mother or whatever, I try and just be present with friends going through crisis or whatever, and not be so quick for advice and less ask. And just be present. There's no greater act of love than being present. Do you without find, judgment? Without judgment, there. That's the key. Without judgment, that's the key. Do you find that when you have been truly heard, truly listened to by another, it's powerful. It, that that something shifts within you. Oh, totally. Your heart opens for one thing. You know, the the frustration or the, yeah, to be heard and seen as you are on a deep level, there's no greater gift you can give anyone. And it works in a mysterious way. It's, it's just because you, you think of listening as being something very passive, but what you're talking about is actually very active. Very active. And not listening to just find something that relates from your own life and then jumping in and saying, look, I have a friend, bless his heart. I won't mention his names. Everything you say, he never really listens. It just spurs a comment from his own life. And I told a friend, a mutual friend of ours jokingly, I have a feeling if I walked up to this guy and said, you know, my mother died yesterday. He said, you know, my mother died too nine years ago. <laughs> I, I kid you not. I, no, I, 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 we've all met someone like that. Not even a beat of, not, oh, I'm sorry. What a terrible, you know, none of yeah, that. Just, yeah. oh, yes, I had a mother who died once. Yes, yes. So that's what we need to not do. <laughs> so in, in being active in our listening, it's not saying what we say back to the person. It's something else. It's letting them be the focus, not ourselves. Yeah. And, and, and there's a kind of energetic present when you have been listened to. It's the third. Jung talks about when two forces come together authentically, it creates a third presence. And that third is greater than either of the part one and part two. So when you come together in that way, and you really, you're totally present, 
it creates that third entity, which is a very powerful spiritual happening. And can be felt. When it's totally. present, you, oh, you yeah. know it was there and you feel yeah. it. You're transformed in some way. And you're usually pulled to silence. Right. You know, one of the things when I lived in India, I was so taken by, when people come together at a gathering, they'll often sit around having their tea and they'll be quiet. Now, any social gathering of Americans, <laughs> they never stop talking. You know, they're sharing information. They're sharing, uh, talking over uh, one another like I am right now. <laughs> yeah, It's unheard of to simply sit in the presence and enjoy just being together. It's very powerful. Simple but powerful. I remember years ago when we were interviewing Marion Woodman, uh, and she's an, uh, an analyst, a young Jungian analyst, yeah. and she talks about when she was in India, yeah. and she was suffering from a, a debilitating illness, she, she, which was very serious. Yeah. And she would go down into the hotel lobby every day and sit. And this Indian woman would come and she would sit next to her. Not only sit next to her, she would start to crowd her and really sit next to her and really butt up against her, and it kind of aggravated her. But in the telling of the story, it, it was she started to feel better and better and better. Her physical body mm -hmm. started mm -hmm. to rebound in good ways, and later she realized that this woman was actually doing a healing on her. Yeah. Yeah. But there were no words spoken between them. I had an incident happen. I had spent two years in India with a great sage, my teacher. And I was in New York City, and I was really homesick for India. And I was feeling really down and very vulnerable. And I got on a subway train, and it was late at night, and there was almost no one else in the car. And I had tears in my eyes. The doors open, an Indian couple walked on. Now, the car was empty. This was a husband and wife. They came to me. One sat on one side and one sat on the other side. They never spoke to me. I could tell they were South Indian, and that's where I had come from, South India. And they sat there for 15 minutes on each side of me close. And no word was said, and I just started crying. And then they left. Now, that was a healing. You know, when I said allies will come to help your journey, and they do. And that was an incident. It was, it was like I had dreamt it, but it was real, yes, like a waking dream. Beautiful, beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. How about you do an exercise that I loved about looking at our lives, about whether we, the, we, where we want to go. Do we want to stay still? Do we want to oh, yes. to go, you know, we're at the crossroads. Yes. Can you say something about being at the crossroads? When you're at the crossroads, there are three choices. You can go back from where you were. You can stay in indecision at the crossroads and not go anywhere. Or you can make a choice and go forward, choose a new road. Those are the only three choices. So I ask you to decide which of the three you will do and write about that, what it means in your life at this time in your life. Or you could write about each one of them and then kind of yes. glean from that. Exactly. What would happen if I went backwards? I mean, maybe it might be appropriate to, 
to to revisit to something. To re- reflect, to absolutely, yes. exactly. There's no growth without change. And to be open to change is a decision. It's an option. Sometimes we'll resist change. We're not ready. We fear change and so on. But it's hard to really grow if there are no changes. But the timing has to be right, too. As you say, it might be a time of reflection before choosing that new road. Right, right. I came to what is it? I took the road less traveled, uh-huh. and that has made all, all the, the difference, difference Robert right. Frost. Right. So tell me, um, what about sharing our writing with others? What's your recommendation That's very there? powerful. Both of my books came out of the workshop experience. I launched both of these, first at the Esalen Institute in Big Sur, and later in England, o- Omega in New York, and different places here and abroad. And there's something about not only doing the exercises and writing them, but being in a group situation and sharing them. And that's very powerful in itself because you're reminded that you're not alone and something you think you're the only one experiencing. Others have been at that crossroads too. So now, it's very healing in itself to have a group. If someone feels like, oh, I'm not a writer and, and complains, oh, I, I, I don't want to write because I'm not a writer. Doesn't matter. What do you say? Well, with Heal Yourself with Writing, that's for non-writers as well as writers. I've also learned, though, uh, that it's very useful for anyone considering writing a memoir. They want to tell the story of themselves or their family. The exercises are very good jump starts for aspects of your own life. But it's also for non-writers. It's not about learning how to write. My earlier book, The Way of Story, is about learning how to write a narrative. But Heal Yourself with Writing is using writing as a healing methodology for healing grief, trauma, and a deeper self-inquiry deeper dialogue with yourself. It's a way of getting to know yourself better. And the more you're aware and know your authentic self, the more potential power you have to live the, the life, your true potential. You would say that there, there more creativity is at your fingertips? Or? Well, even before I did either of these books, you know, writing for me has been the greatest therapy I know. That applies to all creativity. There's no greater healing modality than creative living. You know, whatever focus it takes, in my case, acting and then writing. So I thought if there's a way to adapt that for non-writers or non-creatives where they can, it's about self-healing. I want to be very clear. I don't heal anyone. It's a self-healing experience. And it's been powerful. I've seen it from in Delhi and Greece and Kuwait. It's it's very powerful, this ability to self-heal oneself. I want to thank you so much, Catherine, thank for you. being with us today. A, a pleasure, a real pleasure, Justine. Thank you. I feel I was heard. Oh, goody. <laughs> oh, goody. That's a high compliment coming from you. I yes. w- I've been here with Catherine Ann Jones. She's the author of Heal Yourself with Writing. And if you'd like to know more about her work, you can go to her website, wayofstory.com. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You've been listening to New Dimensions.
This is program number 3500. New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. You can also subscribe to our free weekly podcasts and find over a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Our executive producer is Justine Willis-Toms. Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. For over four decades, New Dimensions has been producing weekly conversations at the leading edge. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions. To find out more about the program you've just heard, to subscribe to our free weekly newsletter and our New Dimensions and New Dimensions Cafe podcasts, and to access thousands of other programs in the New Dimensions archive, please visit our website, newdimensions.org. That's newdimensions.org. Or call us at 707-468-5215. That's 707-468-5215. Please join us next time as we explore New Dimensions. Thank you.